0: section 10 of appreciations with an essay on style this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by martin geeson appreciations by walter pater section 10 love's labors lost love's labour's lost is one of the earliest of shakespeare's dramas and has many of the peculiarities of his poems which are also the work of his earlier life the opening speech of the king on the immortality of fame on the triumph of fame over death and the nobler parts of biron display something of the monumental style of shakespeare's sonnets and are not without their conceits of thought and expression this connection of love's labours lost with shakespeare's poems is further enforced by the actual insertion in it of three sonnets and a faultless song which in accordance with his practice in other plays are inwoven into the argument of the piece and like the golden ornaments of a fair woman give it a peculiar air of distinction there is merriment in it also with choice illustrations of both wit and humour a laughter often exquisite ringing if faintly yet as genuine laughter still though sometimes sinking into mere burlesque which has not lasted quite so well and Shakespeare brings a serious effect out of the trifling of his characters. A dainty love-making is interchanged with the more cumbrous play. Below the many artifices of Biron's amorous speeches we may trace sometimes the unutterable longing, and the lines in which Catherine describes the blighting through love of her younger sister, are one of the most touching things in older literature. Footnote, Act 5, Scene Two. Again, how many echoes seem awakened by those strange words, actually said in jest? The sweet war man, note Hector of Troy, is dead and rotten. Sweet chucks, beat not the bones of the buried. When he breathed, he was a man. Words which may remind us of Shakespeare's own epitaph. In the last scene, an ingenious turn is given to the action, so that the piece does not conclude after the manner of other comedies. Our wooing doth not end like an old play. Jack hath not chill and shakespeare strikes a passionate note across it at last in the entrance of the messenger who announces to the princess that the king her father is suddenly dead the merely dramatic interest of the piece is slight enough only just sufficient indeed to form the vehicle of its wit and poetry the scene a park of the king of navarre is unaltered throughout and the unity of the play is not so much the unity of a drama as that of a series of pictorial groups in which the same figures reappear in different combinations but on the same background it is as if shakespeare had intended to bind together by some inventive conceit the devices of an ancient tapestry, and give voices to its figures. On one side a fair palace, on the other the tents of the Princess of France, who has come on an embassy from her father to the King of Navarre, in the midst a wide space of smooth grass. The same personages are combined over and over again, into a series of gallant scenes. The princess, the three masked ladies, the quaint pedantic king—one of those amiable kings men have never loved enough, whose serious occupation with the things of the mind seems, by contrast with the more usual forms of kingship, like frivolity or play some of the figures are grotesque merely and all the male ones at least a little fantastic certain objects reappearing from scene to scene love-letters crammed with verses to the margin and lovers toys hint obscurely at some story of intrigue Between these groups, on a smaller scale, come the slighter and more homely episodes, with Sir Nathaniel the curate, the country-maid Giaconetta, Moth, or Mote, the elfin page, with Hiems and Ver, who recite the dialogue that the two learned men have compiled, in praise of the owl and the cuckoo. The ladies are lodged in tents, because the king, like the princess of the modern poet's fancy, has taken a vow to make his court a little academe, and for three years' space no woman may come within a mile of it. And the play shows how this artificial attempt was broken through for the king and his three fellow-scholars are of course soon forsworn, and turn to writing sonnets, each to his chosen lady. These fellow-scholars of the king, quaint votaries of science at first, afterwards affections men-at-arms, three youthful knights, gallant, amorous, chivalrous, but also a little affected, sporting always a curious foppery of language, are throughout the leading figures in the foreground, one of them in particular being more carefully depicted than the others, and in himself very noticeable, a portrait with somewhat puzzling manner and expression, which at once catches the eye irresistibly, and keeps it fixed play is often that about which people are most serious and the humorist may observe how under all love of playthings there is almost always hidden an appreciation of something really engaging and delightful this is true always of the toys of children it is often true of the playthings of grown-up people their vanities their fopperies even Their lighter loves. The cynic would add, their pursuit of fame. Certainly, this is true without exception of the playthings of a past age, which to those who succeed it are always full of a pensive interest old manners, old dresses, old houses. For what is called fashion in these matters occupies in each age much of the care of many of the most discerning people furnishing them with a kind of mirror of their real inward refinements and their capacity for selection such modes or fashions are at their best an example of the artistic predominance of form over matter of the manner of the doing of it over the thing done and have a beauty of their own. It is so with that old euphuism of the Elizabethan age, that pride of dainty language and curious expression, which it is very easy to ridicule, which often made itself ridiculous, but which had below it a real sense of fitness and nicety, and which, as we see in this very play, And still more clearly in the sonnets, had some fascination for the young Shakespeare himself. It is this foppery of delicate language, this fashionable plaything of his time, with which Shakespeare is occupied in Love's Labour's Lost. He shows us the manner in all its stages, passing from the grotesque and vulgar pedantry of Holofernes, through the extravagant but polished caricature of armado to become the peculiar characteristic of a real though still quaint poetry in biron himself who is still chargeable even at his best with just a little affectation as shakespeare laughs broadly at it in holofernes or armado So he is the analyst of its curious charm in Biron, and this analysis involves a delicate raillery by Shakespeare himself at his chosen manner. The foppery of Shakespeare's day had then its really delightful side, a quality in no sense affected, by which it satisfies a real instinct in our minds the fancy so many of us have for an exquisite and curious skill in the use of words biron is the perfect flower of this manner a man of fire new words fashions o oh night as he describes armado in terms which are really applicable to himself in him this manner blends with the true gallantry of nature and an affectionate complaisance and grace. He has at times some of the extravagance or caricature also, but the shades of expression by which he passes from this to the golden cadence of Shakespeare's own most characteristic verse are so fine that it is sometimes difficult to trace them. What is a vulgarity in Holofernes, and a caricature in armado refines itself with him into the expression of a nature truly and inwardly bent upon a form of delicate perfection and is accompanied by a real insight into the laws which determine what is exquisite in language and their root in the nature of things he can appreciate quite the opposite style in russet yeas and honest cursey knows he knows the first law of pathos that honest plain words best suit the ear of grief he delights in his own rapidity of intuition and in harmony with the half-sensuous philosophy of the sonnets exalts little scornfully in many memorable expressions the judgment of the senses above all slower more toilsome means of knowledge scorning some who fail to see things only because they are so clear so here you find where light in darkness lies your light grows dark by losing of your eyes as with some german commentators on shakespeare appealing always to actual sensation from men's affected theories, he might seem to despise learning, as indeed he has taken up his deep studies partly in sport, and demands always the profit of learning in renewed enjoyment. Yet he surprises us from time to time, by intuitions which could come only from a deep experience and power of observation and men listen to him old and young in spite of themselves he is quickly impressible to the slightest clouding of the spirits in social intercourse and has his moments of extreme seriousness his trial task may well be as rosaline puts it to enforce the painted impotent to smile but still through all he is true to his chosen manner that gloss of dainty language is a second nature with him even at his best he is not without a certain artifice the trick of playing on words never deserts him And Shakespeare, in whose own genius there is an element of this very quality, shows us in this graceful, and, as it seems, studied portrait, his enjoyment of it. As happens with every true dramatist, Shakespeare is for the most part hidden behind the persons of his creation yet there are certain of his characters in which we feel that there is something of self-portraiture and it is not so much in his grander more subtle and ingenious creations that we feel this in hamlet and king lear as in those slighter and more spontaneously developed figures who while far from playing principal parts Are yet distinguished by a peculiar happiness and delicate ease in the drawing of them, figures which possess above all that winning attractiveness, which there is no man but would willingly exercise, and which resemble those works of art which, though not meant to be very great or imposing, are yet wrought of the choicest material mercutio in romeo and juliet belongs to this group of shakespeare's characters versatile mercurial people such as make good actors and in whom the nimble spirits of the arteries the finer but still merely animal elements of great wit predominate A careful delineation of minor yet expressive traits seems to mark them out as the characters of his predilection, and it is hard not to identify him with these more than with others. Viron, in Love's Labour's Lost, is perhaps the most striking member of this group. In this character, which is never quite in touch, never quite on a perfect level of understanding with the other persons of the play, we see perhaps a reflex of Shakespeare himself, when he has just become able to stand aside from, and estimate, the first period of his poetry. End of Love's Labour's Lost